Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher. I'm an associate professor at Clemson University, and I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm excited to have Abby Dill and Christopher Davis, who work in the Office of Community and Ethical Standards at Clemson University, as our guests. Abby and Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Happy to be here. Happy to be here as well. Excellent. So we're going to talk about your work and um, kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis. But before we get to that, could you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are outside of work? So hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to, whatever you would like to share. And Abby, if you don't mind going first, that would be great. Yeah, no problem. Um, Well, I am someone who can barely commit to any TV show. So I watch a whole bunch of different things and lose track of what I've been watching and then end up just moving on. Um, But recently I've gotten really into, I'm a big kind of puzzle problem solver person. So it's kind of an old lady thing to do, but I love doing Sudokus and I puzzle every day. Gotten really into some card games. Um, If anyone knows the game Baraco out there, uh, hit me up and I will play with you. Um, other than that, I like to to read some things. Um, I, I haven't really picked up a new book recently, um, but I'm currently reading a book titled The Only Good Indians, um, which is a horror satire book. It's pretty cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. Christopher, how about you? Um, I have a little bit about me. I have, I'm not into puzzles. Um, unfortunately, me and my best friend try to do a puzzle. Um, about a year ago during during quarantine um, and it just, just did not work out. We got frustrated and I think we, we gave up because I think the puzzle took like five hours to do because it was like a 500 piece puzzle. Um, but besides not liking puzzles, I'm more so of a, an outdoors person. So I like to hike, um, I like to trail run a lot. Um, I love to cook, um, pasta is my favorite dish. Um, me and my mother cook a lot. And so, you know, once she goes, once she make it from scratch, she don't go back. Um, and so a lot of what I do is just making home-cooked meals. Um, I like to work out. Um, Zumba is my favorite workout class um, because I love dancing. Um, I feel like if I wasn't in the role that I'm in now within student affairs, I feel like I'll probably be a hip-hop dancer. Um, so that is a, a little bit about, about me and who I am. I've heard so many conduct officers say that. If this wasn't what I was doing, I'd be a half enough dancer. So thank you for sharing <laughs> that. Yeah, really appreciate it. Definitely not me. <laughs> um, great. Um, Christopher, why don't you tell us a little bit about your route to student affairs, kind of how you got to where you are today. And um, as a grad student, go ahead and put in a plug what you hope to be doing when you're done with the program. So a year and a half from now, you'll get outreach from all of the listeners saying, hey, come work for us. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So just to give a a little bit of background of a little bit about my undergraduate experience. Um, I came in as a freshman um, during my undergrad as an economics major um, with a minor in marketing, Um, you know, for the longest time, I thought I wanted to be a corporate lawyer um, and really, you know, just, you know, not, not necessarily corporate or, you know, something that has to do with lawyer just, you know, to help people. And um, during my time as an undergrad, I was very shy. Um, I took a first year seminar class called Universe 100 at Radford University. 
um, which basically taught me, you know, academic, personal, and social skills of how to get involved, um, how to reach out to your professors, um, and things that you may need throughout your academic journey. Um, and a lot of what came from that is just like really pushing me out of, outside of my comfort zone. Um, so the biggest thing that I wanted to do that I never took up in high school was to get involved. Um, so I started to, you know, get involved with like my hall um, association um, within my residence hall. Um, I started to become a tutor on campus. Um, and then, you know, leading into like sophomore and junior year, I started to get involved in the SGA. Um, also to became an instructor for the first year seminar class that I took my freshman year. Um, and then, you know, as you start to, as I started to get more involved in offices and organizations that were student oriented, um, I realized that my passion wasn't necessarily working in, you know, law anymore um, and to become a lawyer. Um, and so I remember talking to who is now, and I, and I hope she hears this. Um, I was talking to my nagging RA who served as SJ president at the time. Um, we are best friends to this day. Shout out to Juliana Stanley. Um, but I remember at the end of my sophomore year, we were done with an event that we had just hosted for the student body. And she was driving me home and I was like, you know, like, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think I want to be a lawyer anymore. Like, I really love what I'm doing here on campus, like making a difference, like really interacting with students um, and, and things like that. And she was like, Chris, I think you'd be great for student affairs. And I was like, well, what is student affairs? Like, you know, who, who knows that this field exists? Um, and so she explained to me because she was also going into the student affairs field. She just graduated um, this past spring. Um, and she was telling me a little bit more about, you know, what it entails and like, what do you do? Um, currently what I'm doing now, but on a, on a bigger level. And I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds so cool. This sounds so much fun. I think I want to do this. Um, and so at that, at that point in time, I haven't committed to be, being a student first. I thought I was still being going to be a lawyer. Um, I told myself that it was just a phase, you know, it's just your undergraduate experience is just getting a hold of you. Like you're still going to follow your, follow your dreams, follow your passions of going to law school in the future. And junior year came around, I started to connect with the Dean of Students who was our primary advisor for SGA um, and also the vice president for student affairs. And I got more insight of like what really, what student affairs really um, entails and what it really, you know, who it benefits and what does it really, what does the job necessarily do? Um, and so just really getting, you know, my foot into the door by having a conversation with them almost every week. And then by the end of my junior and senior year, um, I realized that student affairs was, was something that I wanted to do and something that I was very passionate about because I love working with students, especially first-generation students, um, students that are underrepresented, um, and just, you know, just benefiting them and just, like, teaching them and, like, helping them grow and develop not only as a leader um, to be productive outside of college, but also to be a better individual um, overall. And I remember interviewing with Abby, um, who I was, um, as I was going through the GARS um, program here, um, and she put it in, in the best way possible. Like, you know, you, you, love the, you love the advocating side of things. Like that is what more so what student affairs is. It's advocacy, um, it's supporting, it's, you know, guiding and advising. Um, and I realized that's what I love to do. And I realized that like, I don't have to be a lawyer to help people. Like there's other ways of helping. Um, and advocating for those students and, you know, helping them grow as an individual is what really led my passion into student affairs and also into the office that I'm working with now. That's great. And I love the idea of conduct as <clears throat> advocacy because um, I think people who haven't worked in conduct have a different take on it. 
Um, but really it is about student success. So that's great. Um, so not law school, but law adjacent work that you're doing for sure. So excellent. Um, Abby, how about you? Yeah, absolutely. It's Chris put his so eloquently. It's I'm a little intimidated to follow up. Um, but similarly to Chris, I kind of started in the in the law range. Um, I think I went maybe a little bit more non-traditional route to student affairs. Um, I kind of started my journey all the way back in high school. Um, I had some issues with uh, mental health as a lot of high school students do and, and moving into college, I really wanted to go into a science field, um, specifically biology or biomedical engineering. Um, I went to Purdue University and my freshman year went a little wild. Um, so sciences didn't really work out for me. Um, kind of after that first year experience, I realized that I needed to kind of get my stuff together, settle down, figure out what it was that I really liberal arts field thinking, okay, you know, I'm great at arguing, I'm pretty organized, um, and I do have a passion for mental health advocacy and just advocacy in general. So that kind of led me to the law school path, um, but that was more so kind of driven by outside factors. Um, you know, my parents said I would be a great lawyer, other members of my family and friends all said the same thing. So I actually ended up um, falling into the lap of Purdue Student Legal Services, where I was working um, alongside the office of the Dean of Students. They shared an office space there. Um, just kind of so happened that I naturally fell towards what the office of the Dean of Students were doing there. Um, loved the work I did for Purdue, Purdue Student Legal Services, um, but I had the opportunity to work more specifically with um, the student of concern process, care intervention, and the behavioral intervention team at Purdue University. Um, I ended up working there for two and a half years, stayed for about six months after I graduated, uh, took a gap year and realized that I wanted to go into higher education. So myself out of Indiana, I was blessed and lucky enough to, to come here to Clemson, um, where I actually started as the grad assistant in Christopher's position. Um, and if the context isn't there, I'll give it now. I am now currently the assistant director. So um, wasn't quite the exact mental health path I thought I was going to follow. Um, but I landed in a role that has kind of magically combined my love for mental health as well as kind of the more legal sides of me. Um, and as Chris said, you know, I think that the perfect concoction out of that is that you get to be the advocate. So it's all worked out and, and I couldn't be happier where we're at. Excellent. Abby, would you talk a little bit about um, so we're always talking about how student, student affairs is a small field. And, um, you know, if you don't know someone, you know somebody who knows them. So just in the interest of maybe building some points of reference or connections for listeners, would you be willing to talk about, you know, a person or a few people that you found have been really instrumental in your um, experience into, through, you know, if it's a supervisor, a mentor, whoever it might be? Yeah, absolutely. I kind of have um, three different distinct groups of people I like to attribute to not just my success, but my enjoyment in this field. Um, so kind of starting from the beginning, um, shout out to my Odos team from Purdue University. Hopefully they hear this at some point. Um, those are the folks that really, really, really just made me feel at home and, and helped me 
come to the conclusion that what I was pursuing wasn't necessarily aligned with what I was most passionate about um, and helped me discover student affairs. So, um, you know, I, I especially like to give thanks to Dr. Katie, who's the Dean of Students over there, as well as Stephen Yeagley, um, who's one of the directors of the VIT team. Um, awesome, awesome people. Um, so thankful to have had them in my life. Um, and then kind of moving forward, um, as I developed relationships and, and began working and going to school here at Clemson, um, Michelle, can't go without mentioning you. Um, you know, you, Tony, and all the other faculty members um, in our student affairs program have just been instrumental in my ability to, to succeed academically and professionally, as well as, you know, process and maintain my own mental health and, and self-care throughout what can be a stressful time. Um, you know, we're not only in school, but we're dealing with professional things, and especially in the conduct world, sometimes that can hold a little bit more weight, um, just given the certain experiences that we have. So um, I really owe it to the, the, the support that you all had provided me throughout my time as a student, and even now, um, I know the pandemic's made communication a little bit more rough um, since we're unable to see each other in person, um, but I've always felt that, um, you know, you guys have played a really important role. Uh, and then the last two people that I would like to just mention are um, my supervisors as well as our other team members in OCES. Um, I had the privilege of having the interesting experience of working in an office that was in a great deal of transition. Um, so I was lucky enough to um, serve the majority of my time as a graduate student um, under a Dr. McAdams, um, who I believe was just incredible, amazing. I couldn't have asked for a better um, individual to oversee my transition into student affairs and higher education. Um, she has since moved on from her role um, at Clemson University, and I am now working under Chris Hodge, um, who is our new director. Um, and she has really given me the opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, explore and and thrive and really build on who I want to be as a professional um, because I'm no longer a student. So really all that to say, in any corner you look going through these experiences, you're going to find people that can lift you up, connect you to other people and, and help you really figure out where it is that you belong in this field. So I couldn't thank all of y'all enough. Wonderful. And you've also had the experience of working for someone with primarily a student affairs background, as well as someone with a legal background. So um, not everybody gets that opportunity too, so. Yeah, it's it's been very great because I think, um, you know, there is excellent merit in both experiences um, mm -hmm. and both grounds. But for me personally, being able to work under those two different types of um, supervisors has really helped me kind of tweak and tailor my own practice of conduct. Mm -hmm in higher education. So that's been a really unique experience um, for my own development. Great. How about you, Chris? Who are some key players in your world? Yes, absolutely. So um, a few of, of my mentors from, from Radford University, um, again, shout out to Juliana Stanley, who just recently graduated from the student affairs field um, and from the program. Um, she was a, a big help and a big benefit. Even though I called her my nag nagging RA, um, she's a lifelong best friend of mine um, who really introduced me and got my foot into the door with student affairs and really got me connected with the student affairs leadership team at, at Radford University. Um, the Dean of Students um, slash Associate Vice President for Student Affairs, Angie Mitchell, um, who really helped me during my time in SGA um, because during my senior, senior year, I did serve at SGA president. So she was my primary source 
um, for everything that I needed um, of getting applications in um, in the program, um, learning more about it, helping me through interviews and things like that, and just really helping me understand what the student affairs entails and what does it look like on a day-to-day -day basis of holding the position of Dean of Students and Associate Vice President for Student Affairs. Um, and then also the Vice President for Student Affairs, Dr. Susan, Susan Tragesser, who is amazing, love her so much. Um, she has really um, been a mentor um, and honestly a second mom to me as well, um, along with Heather Hollinsworth, who has really um, who was teaching alongside with me for the past three years um, in our first year seminar classes that we did. Um, she is also a second mom who has really helped me um, really find my passion and really helped me, you know, move or transition out of, you know, becoming a lawyer to following a passion of mine of working with students in the future. Um, and then unlike Abby, I am a new, new individual to the program, um, to the field. Um, and so I have not have had as much experience as her, but um, shout out to the OCS team and staff members. I felt so welcome, especially Abby. Um, I felt so welcome when I came in. I felt like we hit the ground running. We've made a lot of great work um, and we're gonna continue doing that. Um, and then also my Cougars buddy, um, Olivia Bettinelli, um, who is an amazing individual um, who really sold me on coming to Clemson University for student affairs. Um, she has been a great mentor throughout my process. I'm pretty sure she probably, we had a conversation um, two or three weeks ago when we had dinner about how we felt like that we were annoying each other because we were always asked so many questions. And I was like, honestly, you have benefited me. You sold me on Clemson University. Um, and that's the, the reason as to, as to why I'm here. Um, and then also shout out to Tony um, and Michelle um, who has helped me on my transition uh, to Clemson University coming from a, a small liberal arts school to a large uh, public research institution. Excellent. Would you talk a little bit about um, your office? So what what's your philosophy in OCES and what types of cases do you hear? Uh, yeah, I, I can jump in on this one. Um, Kristen, please add anything if I'm if I'm missing it. Um, but I think that, you know, at the core of what we do in the Office of Community and Ethical Standards um, is to be educational in addressing um, alleged violations of our student code of conduct. So we really want to focus on restorative justice that's going to benefit all parties involved, um, you know, obviously to certain extents. Um, we really try and avoid any situation where a student is going to be separated from campus um, because we believe that you know, to, to get into this institution, you know, you are at a certain level and we believe that you have the potential to be successful and to give back to um, not only our community, but, you know, all of the communities that you'll end up in once you leave Clemson, um, if you leave. I know some people like to stick around because it's great. Um, but yeah, so at the core of what we do um, is education. I think we really believe to uh, shout out to student development theory in kind of following along, I believe it's Stanford's theory of challenge and support. Um, so we really like to tailor our, to really figure out what level of advocacy the student needs um, and compare that to, you know, the matching level of say expected accountability or self-sufficiency. Um, so we really wanna look to provide an experience for a student that's not only going to hold them accountable, um, but that will also allow them to grow and develop um, and restore some of the relationships or um, 
you know, the, the issues or malpractices or risk behaviors that they were engaging in previously. Um, so I think a good, a good thing to mention to at this point is lots of times people will look at the conduct office as this horrifying, scary place um, that students go to get yelled at and told that they've made, you know, mistakes that are going to damage their future for the rest of their life. Uh, we are not interested in falling into that, that category. We like to be seen as humans. We are your friends. We want you to succeed. Um, and we're here to help you do that. We understand that bumps in the road happen all the time, especially in college. Um, so we want to, you know, be part of the process of rebuilding that foundation for a student to succeed. Um, so with that said, the types of cases we see really range. Um, Chris sees a lot. I see a lot as hearing officers. Um, we, you know, deal with almost all issues of misconduct on campus that don't necessarily have to do um, inherently with um, equity or inclusion um, or other things like that. Sometimes those are dealt with in separate offices. Um, but we primarily will look at uh, low level cases such as, you know, first time possession of alcohol or possession of fake ID all the way up to, um, you know, physical assault, sexual assaults, um, as well as other incidents that may result in a student unfortunately being separated from campus. All right. Can you give just sort of a quick overview of what a hearing looks like? So a student's gotten, and I'm sure this varies depending on the violation, but a student's gotten a letter or been notified that um, they should come in and have a conversation. What does that look like once they're in the office with you? Absolutely. Um, I can go ahead and, and jump on this question. Um, so what that looks like is that we receive reports from multiple sources um, from either inside our community or outside of our community. Um, a lot of it has to deal with um, police reports, um, stuff that is reported from our housing staff slash office, um, and also incident reports that are filed um, with the alleged victims, witnesses, um, and things like that. Um, and then once we get that report, we send out a charge letter letting them know of their of their alleged violations, um, whether that is an alcohol policy, um, a substance abuse drug policy, um, ranging from a multitude of, of different policies that are, that are in our code of conduct. Um, if I try to list all of them right now, I think we'll probably be on here for more than 30 minutes to an hour. Um, but once they are, um, once they have received their letters, um, we schedule they schedule a meeting. We schedule a meeting with them, um, and they meet with us and they go through the formal hearing process. So we talk about the incident. Um, and first things first, um, within every meeting, so if we want to build that rapport. Um, as Abby said, we are looked at in the conduct office um, as to be punitive or you know out to get students. Um, and that is not our purpose or mission at all. Again, our mission is to more so educate students and help them make those positive differences when they go back into the community. Um, and so a lot of this is just to like try to break down that wall to ensure like, a, you know, like we are not trying to be um, as we as higher higher education institution used to be before local parenthesis, um, which is in the place of a, of a parent. Um, we are not trying to be like that at all. We are more so of like helping you, um, your mentor, your friend, and also helping you holding you accountable for what for the alleged violations that you have made, but also, you know, ensuring that we are in, in a sense educational. Um, so we build that rapport um, and then we discuss the incident with the student. Um, and then once we discuss the incident with the student and go all over the evidence um, and get in their, their side of the story due to um, due process that we um, and really just come up with an educational sanction. Um, and so our 
conversations are more so like how can we how can we help you make those positive differences how can we best help educate you to make those better informed decisions and again go back out into the community um and so really once we have determined whether or not a student is in violation or not in violation and that is when we determine what the educational sanction is um and the educational sanctions range um from multitude of, of multitude of things um such as a reflection paper um an alcohol class a marijuana class um personal notifications um and things like that um and so once we have determined the educational sanction, um, then that's when we would send the student the outcome letter, um, and then that's when they would have to complete it in a um, in a time frame. Um, and then once they have completed it, then the case is closed. Um, and then, as we tell the student, you know, mistakes happen. You know, things come up, challenges come up in your academic journey here. You are not a perfect person, um, and so you know, we do not want you to. Um, beat yourself up about it um, because we understand understand that things happen. Um, you know, sometimes we deal with situations where it's a wrong place, wrong time type of thing. And then also sometimes we deal with situations that can be a little bit more sticky because the student doesn't know um, the policies and procedures of OCS. Um, and so what our job is to really give them that insight on how um, on how our policies and procedures work and also give them a little bit more information on our code of conduct and what it says. Um, and so a program that Abby um, and Olivia had came up with last year, which I think is a very beneficial program is Tiger Accountability, um, which teaches students about, you know, what is in our code of conduct? Um, what are some things that you're not aware about? Um, it teaches about South Carolina state laws and also federal and local laws. Um, it teaches about medical amnesty. It teaches about the policies and procedures of our office and also the jurisdiction of what we have. Um, and I think a lot of students or the students that I have encountered since my time here has really been more so of like, you know, I didn't know about this, or, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that that was in our code of conduct. And so, you know, the program is really beneficial because it helps you um, understand and, and understand our policies and procedures and help you know what's in it. So therefore, when you are in a sticky situation um, that may or may not occur again, or you may know of a friend that is in that same sticky, sticky situation, you have the educational um, background to really, you know, make those better informed decisions or, you know, advise one of your friends or someone that you may know to make those better informed decisions. Great. How do you do, Abby? I was going to say he passed. <laughs> Chris, for those who don't know, at the time this comes out, it'll probably be a little later, but Chris is at the time of this recording only a few months into his role here at OCS, and he has just rocked it. That so, was great. Wouldn't add anything else. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's talk a little bit about COVID specific stuff. Um, so how, what are COVID related violations? And again, this would vary depending on what the policies are on a given campus, but how have, how has COVID affected policy and interacting with students, um, interacting with parents? Are they, um, I shouldn't say, are they? I'm guessing the better question is, how are they um, <laughs> engaging with your office around their opinions, concerns, things like that? Um, yeah, so the question, Abby, is COVID? <laughs> yeah, pretty loaded question. Um, you know, I think as with most institutions and just corporations, households, families, groups of friends, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really shaken things up for a lot of people, um, including Clemson's campus um, and those who are 
overseeing um, you know, compliance with these new policies, overseeing the rolling out of these new policies, um, as well as those being impacted by these new policies, um, which are not just students, it is um, you know, faculty, staff, um, and really everyone in our community. I think that, again, with most other people, I would assume agree, things have been ever-changing. Um, so, you know, when COVID was first really coming into the forefront of things and the focus was really turning towards, ooh, we might not be able to continue to safely, you know, have classes on campus, have students going to intramurals, having athletes go to their practices on a red, regular schedule, um, you know, the panic kind of shifted to, all right, let's get everyone home, let's make sure everyone's safe. Um, and all the transitions that went with that had to do with, you know, the famous word pivot, let's move everything online, let's help support the students um, navigating these new hybrid uh, online courses, let's support the professors in building these online courses that many may just have not experienced before. Um, you know, on top of that, on the student affairs side of things, all of the work that we have been doing to support students in their success now had to quickly be transitioned into an online format. Um, because some would argue at that point more than ever, everyone being sent home, these services became extremely important to continue engaging students with their education, with their peers, and with the institution that they chose to attend. Um, so that was a bumpy road, you know, but once we figured all that stuff out, we kind of had the summer to, to regroup and figure out what was fall gonna look like. That was the big question. Were students gonna come back? Were they gonna stay online? If they came back, what are the rules gonna be? If some of them come back and some wanna stay, how are we gonna do that? Uh, lots of those questions we're still trying to answer. Um, and we're about, what, a year and a half into this. Um, I think that, you know, we've navigated it as best we can. Um, some of the kind of main implications were maintaining students off campus, um, but at some point, you know, universities are businesses as well. Education is proven for the most part to be more beneficial, more productive, and more engaging in person. Um, so we really had to teeter that fine line of what is safe for us to bring students back and what isn't, because the ultimate goal is to somehow return to some form of normalcy, but that's not going to be done without specific steps being taken. Um, so kind of skipping ahead to bringing students back on campus, um, because once all students were off campus, things were kind of in a bit of a lull. We were tracking the cases that were around campus. But other than that, students were kind of just doing their thing. Um, if they, for some reason, needed to access campus, most things were closed. They would need specific permissions. Um, so there weren't really any policies in place other than ones having to do specifically with the academic side of things and that online transition. Bringing students back, um, the university had to quickly come up with a brand new policy that we put in our student code of conduct related to failure to comply with the health or safety directive. Um, the interesting thing about that is that it's not COVID specific. Um, it is an all encompassing policy that has to do with really any type of um, emergency, whether that be weather related, pandemic related, um, you know, anything that the university can step in and say, this is a threat to our public health and safety. These are the policies follow those policies because they are now covered by this failure to comply with health or safety directive. The way we actually carried out compliance with that 
shifted a bunch as we kind of navigated what things were going to look like when students did return to campus. Um, so we've had some shifts in testing policies. Um, we're currently at the point where students are required to get tested every seven days, so once a week, in order for them to maintain a cleared status on campus. Um, we're not currently mandating vaccinations. Um, so some students do have those, some don't. That's posed an interesting um, situation, we'll call it, um, where students who are vaccinated are saying, hey, why do I have to get tested every week? Um, so kind of navigating that discourse has been interesting. Um, we, at the very beginning of the fall semester and throughout the majority of the semester um, in 20, 20, yeah, seems like this whole year just almost didn't happen, it went by so fast. Um, but fall 2020, a pretty strict mask policy. Um, so we were really navigating how to adequately respond to that. So we were getting all of these reports um, regarding violations of mask policies that coming into the semester, we figured, okay, we're gonna have some students who just don't wanna do it. How are we gonna deal with that? So we set up a process of, okay, if they choose not to do it, we're gonna refer them to what we call our Tiger Steps program. It's a $75 fee and an educational online course. Um, what we found when we got to campus was that there were a bunch of other different scenarios where students were being written up for failure to comply with these directives. Whether it be, you know, walking into their residence hall without the mask on, walking to the bathroom from the residence hall back without their mask on, forgetting their mask when they get to class, um, and then ranging to students that simply just didn't want to wear it. So we found that response to that, we needed to somehow evolve it because um, we had to maintain consistency while also appropriately responding to all of these different types of circumstances. Um, so that was very interesting to navigate. Uh, Chris, you know, you're still getting some pushback now um, as a graduate assistant, but at the time I was the grad assistant um, primarily dealing with all of those mask violations. So we probably were seeing, I wanna say upwards of 1500 in the last year alone um, that had to do with just failure to comply with health and safety directives. We've shifted from the fall um, because we noticed some patterns. There was student pushback, um, which, you know, rightfully so, I think that within our ability to process and respond to something that was unprecedented, really, um, we did what we could and, and we tried to be consistent while also maintaining a fairness with that process. You know, some students who simply forgot their mask and always wore their mask were getting into the same quote unquote trouble as students who were consistently and aggressively choosing to violate these policies. Um, so we would get a lot of pushback from students who felt that the response was disproportionate to the violations, um, along with parents saying the same thing. Uh, anytime a student is involved with the conduct office, typically in, you know, and Michelle, Chris, maybe you can agree with me, but if a parent catches wind of that, it's a, it becomes and, you know, it turns into a big deal um, where we might see some of these things as not a huge deal. Due process requires us to send all of these alarmingly long and scary letters so that a student knows what's going on. But in reality, on the back end of things, we're saying, do this program, it'll be off your record. But what they're seeing is a two page, you know, long document that's saying, 
we received this report. You are allegedly in violation of this policy. This is unacceptable. You must do this program. You can appeal this. You can do X, Y, Z. Um, and I think a lot of confusion can get started, especially when it's talking just about response to, you know, all of these policies that are coming into place newly as of fall 2020. Um, so we saw, saw a lot of pushback from that. And that kind of prompted us to transition things, evolve our process, um, work with housing and other reporting entities on campus um, to come up with a process that is still fair and still consistent, but a little more aligned with the reality of what it is that we're dealing with. Um, so we developed a new program uh, that Chris mentioned earlier, I got to develop with Olivia um, that focused primarily on policy. Um, so now students who find themselves in the situation where they're in violation of our failure to comply with health or safety are those that are consistently not wearing their masks, consistently not getting their weekly test, um, or consistently engaging in behavior that is putting a large group of individuals at risk. So holding parties um, and things like that where just individuals are put in, in risk situations, whether they're immunocompromised or not. So we've kind of tailored our response um, to be a little bit more accurate and aligned with the reality of the situation. And I think that that has ultimately, one, given our office great room for improvement, um, not just from an assessment standpoint, but from a relationship standpoint with our student body, with our um, you know, campus partners, and with the parents in the community. Um, so it's given us a really great opportunity to figure out how we're actually going to respond to these things. Um, and we've gotten a lot less, less pushback. And, you know, with the vaccines and with our policies and our reasonable responses, we're seeing a lot more compliance um, and we're seeing cases go down. So that was pretty long-winded. Chris, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so just to sum up or to add onto, onto what Abby said, um, from my time here being at Clemson University, um, of course, at, at RAF University, we also had failure to comply with the healthy directives um, or the say the health and safety guidelines of the of the university. Um, but I think it's a it's a it's a little bit different. Um, so at Radford, it was more so of you know we had a gathering limitation of ten people, um, and so students that are hosting you know off campus activities, you know where do we where do we draw the line? Also with you know students who are who are quarantined, you know within the fourteen days if they leave you know, their quarantine earlier, like where, where is the line being drawn or for students test positive or negative, um, you know, things like that. Like where, where do we draw the line of like, you still have to quarantine within between 10 and 14 days. Um, a lot of what I see in the conduct office and from my experience here at Clemson is that a lot of our, when I mean that, when, I, when we say that we're educational, I believe we are. Um, even when we don't, even when we are intentional about education, also when we're not intentional about education. Um, and so a lot of what it looks like is like, we, we clarify a lot of things because I think that COVID has really brought out the curious, um, curiousness in, in students. Like students are asking more questions. Students want to know more information. Um, and so our job necessarily along with our COVID support system here at Clemson um, is just to clarify any, you know, misinformation that they have been, have received from other people, multiple different sources. Um, I think technology has really created and social media has really created a lot of um, misconstrued information that students are just like, well, I heard this, or, you know, well, someone told me this. And so our job necessarily is to really just provide that, that educational component and the clarification of like, 
this is what Clemson University is doing. Um, and so we run into a lot of students where it's just like, well, I thought I only had to get tested when I first got here to campus, or I didn't think that we had to wear masks in all university operated facilities, or um, why do I have to get tested every week because I'm vaccinated um, and things like that. And so, you know, readdressing um, and reassuring the student of what the policies are and, and giving them that information along with policies from CDC and from the state and from the state of South Carolina as well. Um, just ensuring that every student here at Clemson University um, does have to get tested um, every seven every seven days or every week um, because those are the policies that Clemson University implemented along with trying to follow the policies that are being directed by CDC and also the state of South Carolina. Um, so basically our, I think our office just really revolves around clarification um, and giving students the right information um, and helping them understand, you know, why the university is doing what they're doing. Yeah, and I think if I could just add in, I'm really glad that Chris put it the way he just did. I think a lot of, you know, conduct responses, at least on Clemson's campus, um, I know other institutions have followed similar models and um, some not so much, they've chosen to um, address compliance in other ways. Um, but for our office specifically, it really did become about, you know, where are we drawing that line between fairness and consistency among students? Um, and a big challenge that I'll speak for myself in, in witnessing um, and speaking with students and parents and other individuals on campus was how does the institution as a whole in the administration find the balance between providing information to the student body, um, setting forth specific rules and specific processes to respond to violations of those rules while still maintaining the ability to pivot when necessary. Because, you know, as we said, these were unprecedented times. These are still unprecedented times. So at any point during this ever evolving and ever changing situation, things could change on a day-to-day -day basis. So sending out concrete, you know, this is what we are doing could be difficult and it could be misconstrued and miscommunicated um, and changed within the next day. You know, I hadn't really thought about it before you all were sharing, but um, I mean, I've always thought of conduct <clears throat> excuse me, is primarily an educational process. But in this situation, you really are health educators, not just policy educators. Um, so yeah, and people want, well, often people don't want rules to begin with, but for those who do, they want it to be pretty concrete and set. Um, and having to adapt and because this has all been a learning experience, you know, and we know more and different things now than we did a year ago and certainly than two years ago. So yeah, I, it's just interesting to think of, so what is the policy today and how do we best approach that? Um, you've done a great job of talking about the the COVID context of your work. Um, and this can be COVID, but it doesn't have to be. What are some things you really love about the work that you get to do? Oh, so many things. Um, I'll, I'll start us off. Um, 
something that one of my mentors back at Purdue, and I think Michelle, you and I have talked about this before too, um, is, you know, to some degree in this type of work, you have to be able to, you know, find some levity or a way to make some of this stuff easier to digest when you're dealing with more of the difficult things. Not to say that conduct is always, you know, boom, 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 horrible. You have to find some happiness. Um, Cause really that's not the case, but um, I think there's a great deal of camaraderie that comes with being conduct officers in higher education. Um, you just get to experience students in a different way than I think a lot of individuals and higher education practitioners do because, you know, we are at a unique point where Yes, we are dealing with accountability and we're dealing with students, you know, arguably sometimes at their worst um, or, you know, at the front end of that decline. And we get to kind of watch them and help them hopefully, you know, turn that around and turn back up. So, you know, you can have a moment where you acknowledge with a student that, okay, that was kind of silly. Let's not be doing that anymore. Let's talk about who you are, what you stand for, and what you want to do on campus. And let's refocus some of this energy. Um, so you really get to kind of create this just fun interaction, in my opinion. Um, and you get to share that amongst other conduct officers where other student affairs practitioners just may not have that context um, and may not see the joy that comes with dealing with some of these more difficult situations. Um, and something that I personally love the most about working in conduct is Chris kind of mentioned and all student affairs support uh, theories and documents and books will say the same thing that rapport building is important. Um, and I think that that's just the most incredible part of what we do is there are certainly times when we're meeting with students where, you know, business is business, this is formal and your violation is serious and we have to be serious about this. But there are also those other super, super rich moments where you get a student who is on their first or second violation. You know, it's not something that on the front end of things you see as ruining the student's life because most of these times it's things that students can continue on to succeed from. Um, but they come into this space thinking, oh my goodness, my life is over. I'm getting kicked out of school. I'm a horrible person. I cannot believe I did, you know, and it keeps going on and on and on. And they meet with us face-to-face -face or screen-to-screen -screen now. Um, and you kind of get to watch that melt away as they realize you're not out to get them. You're actually out to, you know, bring about some restorative justice and hold them accountable, but to be that support beam and help them move past this incident. So one of my most rewarding things is telling a student, you know, you're not a bad person. Mm -hmm. um, this was just a mistake and these things happen. So how can we move forward and, and make change? So it's really nice to see students kind of reframe the way they view conduct on campus for me. That's great. How about you, Chris? Um, <laughs> um, I, I love the work that I do. I think a lot of what Abby, Abby was saying just to, and just to, and just a pivot off of, off of her, um, I think a lot of it is just the work that I love is because, you know, we're changing perspectives. Um, and I think that that is what conduct really is. It just changed your perspective, the perspective of how you view our office, um, the perspective of, you know, making, you know, you thinking that you're, you made one mistake in your life is completely over. Um, and so like, I think that a lot of what students 
uh, what a lot of students have experienced up until that time when they entered um, into Clemson University or just post-secondary um, and higher education institutions is really just like, you know, their whole entire lives, you know, it has always been, and it, and if, and it varies from different students depending on background and culture, their whole entire lives, you know, when they make a mistake, you know, they are looked at or they are viewed as, as if they are the most horrible person in the world or, you know, throughout their time in K through 12 education, you know, you look at the principal's office, the principal's office is there to, is there to punish you, um, whether that is you are in, in school suspension or out of school suspension or a multitude of other different punishable things that, you know, a principal has within their power um, to do. Um, and so when they get to post-secondary institutions, when they look at the conic office, they kind of view it as, as the principal's office. Um, and so our job really is necessarily to just really like change that perspective of, you know, like how can we be more educational? Like we're not out here to get you and things like that. And again, like as Abby, as Abby said, like just seeing that all melt away. Um, and a lot of what I love about my job is that like when a student leaves the meeting, um, you know, they're just like, thank you so much. I really appreciate you understanding me. Um, and, you know, throughout the meeting, I asked them like, you know, like, what, like, you know, what did you think about coming into this meeting? And the, the most common question that, or answer that I get is, I was very nervous. I didn't know what to expect, things like that. Um, and so, and then, you know, once they complete their sanction and they email, you know, their, whatever they are completing back to me, you know, in the email, they're just like, thank you so much for understanding. I really appreciate this. This was really beneficial and it helped me a lot. Um, and just to see that on a day-to-day -day work and knowing that we are changing the perspective of students and knowing that we are making a positive difference within our community, that is what really like benefits me. Um, because again, like my entire or our entire job really just revolves around like, how do we educate students? How can we change the perspective? How can we realize, how can we really, how can we, you know, intentionally like, like, I don't even know the word, but like intention, like just really like help them understand the situation from a different perspective. And I think a lot of what I've learned and what Abby has learned and probably in her student first classes, especially in advising and supporting is like really just interpreting and, 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 and confronting um, and just really just changing that perspective of like, what is like, why do you think that way? And things like that. And just really on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis of student affairs in general, like our job is to really just advise um, and to change a per and to change a perspective of students, not necessarily like from personal values or beliefs or anything like that, but allow them to look at the situation from a different angle. Um, and changing that angle will really help them see like, okay, maybe it's not as bad as I thought, or maybe it's not as as horrible as I thought, or maybe this won't ruin my life. Because again, we see a variety of different cases coming into OCS office, and each case is different, um, and each case is more serious than the others. Um, however, as a student, like you're not looking at just you're not looking as like, OK, maybe this is not as bad. You're looking like this can ruin my life. I'm never going to get anywhere because of X, Y and Z because of what I did, um, because that's what you were taught your whole entire lives. And it's not necessarily what you did is how we move forward. And that's mostly our job is like, how can we help you move forward from this incident to, again, make those better informed decisions? Yeah, and I will if I can add real quick on the flip side, um, because a, a lot of what we do does and it sounds so silly because I don't think people view conduct as this way but a lot of what we do is that mushy like you're I'm going to hold you accountable but like you're going to be okay um you need to do this you need to um you know practice these restorative justice things you need to complete this community service you need to do that once you do it like I'm here to make sure you succeed 
There is the flip side of that though, um, where we do see students who don't necessarily have that attitude. Um, I will say that the process and the experience is pretty much the same. It's just different and that the attitudes are a little different and it might be going from extremely high to low for those who are really worried about their future and end with, I'm gonna be okay to the other end. So you're going from an extremely low to extremely high. So we'll see students who don't feel like they need to follow the student code of conduct. They don't feel like, you know, 25 year old Abby Dill in the assistant director position has any say in what I do. Um, and I'm gonna let her know that. So we have the opportunity to break down those types of walls as well. Um, and Chris may not have had as much experience with that since you've only been here a few months, but I'm sure Michelle, you have. Um, those are also the fun ones where when you do get to kind of crack into that exterior that a student has, I mean, I have had experiences with students where I've ended the meeting with a student apologizing um, and saying, I started this off wrong. Um, and I am now seeing what you're saying, what you're here to help me do and what I need to do to be held accountable to not only those around me, but to myself. Um, and sometimes that doesn't happen in just a meeting. Sometimes it takes a few meetings, a few months, maybe even Michelle, a year or so, I've heard some stories. Um, but that's an equally rich experience um, is getting to those students as well. So you get to see all, all types of personalities and, and attitudes towards student conduct. Well, it's a testament to different students learn in different ways. And mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm grateful for students who make mistakes because conduct work is awesome, you know, mm -hmm. and you really do get to engage with students at some critical moments, even if the issue is very minor, because you talk about other things. It's not just the incident, but mm -hmm. um, well, kind of as we move to wrap up, do either of you have suggestions either if someone is sort of thinking about conduct, you know, do you have suggestions of things they should keep in mind or are there other questions that I should have asked or things that you want to talk about um, related to the work that you do, COVID or otherwise? Um, yeah, I think that not just from a conduct standpoint, but this was my experience, but from a student affairs standpoint, um, if you're thinking about going into student affairs, um, really, really, really start paying attention to what's going on around you on campus. Um, I wasn't necessarily the type that was extremely involved. Um, I worked more primarily in the, the niche that was mental health um, awareness and risk management. And within that and within my own experiences, I had really positive experiences with the way mental health case management was working on campus. And admittedly, hopefully none of my students hear this, I had a negative experience with the conduct office at Purdue, um, which truly led me to wanting to develop into this professional that addresses these situations in a different way. Um, so, and that was something that I didn't even really connect to my passion until I was already in this role. And I realized, wow, had I paid a little bit more attention to that, maybe things would have been a little easier for me figuring out what I wanna do. Um, and then for, I think, conduct specifically, you just, you got to be ready to hit the ground running and have uncomfortable conversations and, and be pretty firm in, in who you are as a practitioner and a person. And, and most importantly, find a space that aligns with what you believe conduct should be for students. That's great. Anything to add, Chris? 
Um, I, absolutely. I, I agree with Abby wholeheartedly. Um, I think if you are interested in going into student affairs, um, as Abby said, really try to get involved and really pay attention to, on to what's going on around you. Like, you know, be on a committee, you know, serve on a task force, be on a council, things like that. Like, that's what really gets you involved. Like, try to, not saying that it will help very substantially, but it will help in some way, like, really try to get involved in, like, different areas. So, like, if you are um, wanting to do, like, get into programming, um, try that. Um, if you're wanting to work for the student's office, as Abby was, like, try to do those things. Like, there are different things that can really lead to student affairs. You just don't know about it. And also, like, talk to people. Like, if you're just like, I want to work with students, because no one really knows what student affairs is unless someone introduces it to you. Um, I didn't know. I'm pretty sure Michelle didn't know at first. If you ask any student affairs professional, you know, what led them to, they're going to start with their undergraduate years of how they didn't know about it. They just realized that they love what they were doing. They started talking to people, they started connecting with people. And the next thing you know, like their entire passion switch. Um, if you're interested in going with conduct, um, just know that you're going to work with a variety of different students from all cultures and backgrounds, from all attitudes, beliefs, and things like that. Um, so just be prepared as you enter into the conduct field or any field that you go or any functional area that you go into within student affairs, you're gonna work with a variety of different students. Um, and just remember to be to be educational. Um, so if you when you do provide an educational sanction, not every not every situation is gonna be the same. Um, you know, and you really want to tailor um, what you do to that student and how it will help them um, excel the most. Um, and so, and how it helps them, how it benefits them and how it helps them make those positive differences. Um, conduct is definitely an experience, an experience that I would definitely recommend. Um, I think it's one of the foundations along with housing, tell my housing people out there, don't, don't, don't come at me. Um, with, along with housing, um, conduct is really the foundation of student affairs. Um, and it's a lot of skills, transferable skills that you will learn um, that can help you navigate um, to other different other functional areas, especially getting the policy and the educational background. Wonderful. Well, so this has been a very positive conversation, which um, makes me very happy because, again, I think it runs counter to what people expect conduct to sound like and conduct officers to the tone that they expect and all of that. Um, but to add light upon light, if you will, um, what are some things each of you are hopeful about right now? And it can be work-related, but it could be personal. What's, what's something out there in the world that's bringing you some, some hope and some joy? Oh, gosh, so many things. I'll, I'll go ahead and start, Chris, and give you a second to think. Um, work-related um, and that like personal friendship work-related realm I am just so hopeful, grateful, and thankful for Chris um, coming in and taking on his new role, um, as well as the rest of the OCES team. Um, we have seen some things, we've been through some things, um, and it truly, truly feels like we are coming out on the other side, um, full staffed. We're all great, great people, and I'm just incredibly excited and hopeful for um, what we're gonna be able to accomplish on campus. Um, for our students and, and for one another. Um, I think non-related or non-work related, uh, it's, it's fall. So fall has officially come to us. I know it may, may be winter by the time this comes out, but right now it's fall. 
the heat is kind of going away. Um, so feels feels real good. Feels like a, a good time to be happy. Beautiful. How about you, Chris? Um, well, as Abby was saying, very hopeful for our team um, for welcoming me, welcoming to you know the program and not into the office as well. Um, I'm very hopeful to the educational experience that students will get from our office. Um, I think a lot of what students don't know or don't understand when they first come in is that they don't understand um, a lot of different things of how the university functions and stuff like that. And I think that, you know, from the beginning of the conversation of what we have with them to the end of the conversation, they felt like they have learned a great deal of knowledge and to really um, just go back out there in that, into that community. Um, and help educate other people who may be going through similar um, experiences. Um, I'm very hopeful for my program. Um, you know, I'm very hopeful to learn as much as possible with my GA show and within my program. Um, professors so far are great. Um, shout out to Tony um, and Dr. Poole. Um, they are amazing. They have helped me a long, a long, long way um, of making that transition. Personally, um, as I was saying, thank God that it is fall. Um, because I have never experienced South Carolina heat before. And when I tell you it is different from Virginia, it is different. Um, and I have been back to Virginia multiple times and my friends will ask me um, or would tell me, they're just like, oh my gosh, it's hot out here. And I'm like, you have not experienced heat until you go to South Carolina. Um, and so I'm very hopeful for fall. I'm very hopeful for the holidays um, that are coming up. Um, we are back into holiday season, which um, Mariah Carey will be blasted on November the 1st. Um, and so <laughs> um, we are very, we are very hopeful for that. And this overall, I'm just very hopeful for the people that I got to meet and also just me being in a different area um, and studying something that, I, that I'm very passionate about. Wonderful. Well, thank you both again. I know your time is um, limited and you're in high demand um, or you have many demands put upon you if not always in high demand. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I really do appreciate you taking some time and talking about what the experience has looked like and with that, that COVID context kind of built into it. So thank you both very much for that. Thank you, a pleasure, so much fun. Thank you, thank you for having us. Well, see, don't enjoy it too much or I might ask you back, so. I was gonna say, ask us back. Yeah, I've had too much fun doing this. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, I just wanna take a moment and thank Saxa for their support of the podcast. And this wouldn't be possible without Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida, who is the producer for the show. Um, Gratitude always to you, Jen. And as we wrap up, I would love to leave you with a quote today from one of my favorite people, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said, fight for things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. So my name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode. And I hope that you all have a beautiful day. Thank you.